Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is our first episode and today we are going to be talking about Pixar's classic from 1995, Toy Story. I am one of your co-hosts, I'm Zachary Ortz, and I am joined by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matt! Hey, how are you doing, Zach? Good, good. I'm excited to do this. Um, this will this will be a fun little little adventure for us. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I love movies, and I'm really excited about it and to talk about them. Uh, so we'll see what we'll see what happens here. Yeah. So one of the things that we thought we would do um, before we jump into talking about the meat of the movie is we'd sort of set the scene, talk about our our personal history with the movie. And also talk about where it lands historically, what was going on at the time the movie was released, just to get everybody in the mood for 1995, for November of 1995. So what, uh, I know you're uh, way older than me, Maddie. So what, uh, what's your personal history with Toy Story? <laughs> yeah, so I was, uh, as I was pulling up this movie to watch it this week, I was going down memory lane of what was going on uh, in 1995. I was 11 years old, and I was in sixth grade, so starting middle school. Um, and, you know, it was a very hectic and traumatic year all around, but this is this came out at the beginning of the year. Um, and it came out in Thanksgiving of 1995, and I was trying to pinpoint exactly what happened with it. I know that I saw it in the movie theaters, um, but I can't... We must have gone as a family to watch it uh, for uh, during Thanksgiving break. And I'm pretty sure I know the theater that I went to, a, a local theater in uh, my grandma's neighborhood. But I don't remember all the details of that first experience perfectly. And then how many times have you seen it since then? I don't know. A lot. So, <laughs> uh, it's a, We've had this conversation before, but... Um, I I watch movies a lot. I've probably seen this 50 times, something like that. Yeah. Um, um, I I was eight when this movie came out. And so I asked, I don't remember seeing it for the first time, but it is exactly the age where we would have seen it in theaters. And so I asked my dad and he said, yeah, we did see it in theaters. My sister was the same age as Andy for all of the Toy Story movies. Um but he couldn't remember exactly when or where we saw it in theaters. But he did say, and I don't actually remember this, but he said it was one of the movies that I watched over and over and over at home. So I'm probably in the over 50 range as well. It's just, yeah. I don't remember it at all. Um, I, I've only seen it now twice as an adult. So I rewatched it in college as part of a summer group. And I was... Uh, I guess this was probably before Wally and Up had come out. And so I was not quite back on the Pixar train yet. And I remember just being blown away by how clever the movie was at that time. Because I had thought of it as a kid's movie. And then I just rewatched it for for this, for, <laughs> for this little podcast that we're doing. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a cleverly put together movie um and uh, one of the things we'll figure out as we discuss this is i really like the first toy story a lot um and i'm not as big of a fan of the other toy story movies that came after mm -hmm. it uh, so going back and watching this one uh 
it's just the the way that it's kind of like a foundation for all those Toy Story movies uh, is just incredible. It's it's remarkable to me that they told such a tight story that um, they had such uh, the storytelling elements that they use in this one are top notch. It's obvious that they put a lot of work into this film uh, in every aspect of it, and it holds up. There's issues that the film the film has, but the storytelling itself holds up really well, uh, even now. Yeah. Um, so let's just set the scene a little bit for 1995. Uh, one of the things that was happening in 19 and it is in that weird spot for me where I lived through it, but I don't really remember anything. Um, so I sort of picture 1995 as this rather idyllic time. Um, and going back through the um, uh, events of 1995, it's that's not necessarily true. But the U.S. was in the midst of what would be its longest economic, what was its longest economic growth in history, and then would continue to be its longest economic growth until uh, 2009 to 2020. So. For a lot of people, especially if you were in a <laughs> middle-class white household, uh, things were pretty good. Um, like like Andy's household. Yes, a lot. Yes, so, Andy's household yeah. looked a lot like my household, and so that yeah. feels, yeah, that feels right. The sort of major events that stuck out to me of nineteen ninety five that I remember happening that I think are good markers for the year. The OJ trial was that year. Um, mm-hmm. That had happened maybe just four or five months before this movie had come out. And then the Oklahoma City bombing, which obviously uh, yes. that's not a very happy <laughs> a happy event. But those sort of stuck out to me as the major signifiers of what was going on. But also Bill Clinton was president, but this was before his presidency would sort of be mired in uh, any sort of the scandal that would have been to come for him. So I thought that sort of captured at least what I thought of as sort of this mid-90s optimism in this country for yeah. people. Yeah, and so for me, it's I remember uh, all of this is accurate, um, but I remember my experience was a lot different than this of the, of this year in like the nineties. Um, because I was 11, I was going into middle school and I remember the events a little bit better probably yeah, than yeah, you yeah. do. Cause you know, uh, I was going, I was a preteen. Um, but, uh, my, I remember that this was, so the Persian Gulf war had happened in 91. Uh, and my dad was involved with that and then left the military. And so we were, we moved over to Nevada uh, and we had been there for just like a year, two years, um, when this movie came out. And it, uh, my my living experience was a lot more like Sid's living experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I identify a lot with uh, Sid and like his house and how things are going on. And as I was watching through this time on the rewatch, uh, I was as soon as Sid's house came up, I was so laser focused on everything that was going on there because I realized how much 
that experience identified with my own. And um, you have like Andy's house that shows this kind of idyllic kind of middle class neighborhood or middle class lifestyle, but with a few glaring holes absent. But then you go over to Sid's and it's kind of like this dystopic, um, uh, almost like wasteland inversion of that suburban life lifestyle um and that was definitely what my family was going through at the time time period it was a really like a lot of economic turmoil for us um and you see like uh the it's going a lot better for most other people but for us it was really badly and i think that those 90s really show um that same kind of effect in a lot of people where some people really most people were really benefiting but some people really left on the side uh, from what was going on at the time period. Yeah. Um, and then the the other thing, I, I do want to get back to that and talk about that, but let's do it once we get a little further sure. into the movie. Um, the other big thing that sort of was happening in this time period is that for animated films in particular is that we're immediately following the so-called Disney rejuvenation. Um, So Disney sort of went through a fallow period where they were not quite as successful. And then starting in 1989, they reinvented themselves and reinvented uh, the movie musical, basically, with Little Mermaid in 89, Beauty and the Beast in 91, Aladdin in 92, and then Lion King in 94. Um, So I know we'll get into those at some point. Those are sort of a big four of movies for them. And so this is the scene was really set to have a very successful animated film and a very successful animated film that did things a little differently. Um, In fact, Toy Story would end up being, I think I have it here. Yeah. It was the number two film this year, uh, just following uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance in terms of uh, gross box office. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of background sort of on the history of Pixar and sort of the making of this movie, Maddie? Yeah, so it's, um, this was Pixar's first major motion picture, and it's also the first, um, a, the first fully computer graphics, uh, movie, full length feature film. Yeah. Um, so Pixar had been around. Oh, when did it, when did Pixar come around? It's early eighties. I think it was like eighty eight. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so uh, John Lasseter had kind of been. Uh, he had left Disney and then was working on different kinds of animation, and then uh, ended up getting involved with Steve Jobs and whatnot, um, and putting together this animation studio. Um, so Toy Story. What's fascinating about this one is they started working on it like. Um, uh, this this film was in development for a really long time. Um, they started working on it in the ninety in like nineteen ninety, um, and it went through so much um, story development, and there were just like dozens of versions of the story that they put together. Originally, John Lasseter had come up with this idea of um, of his story Tin Toy of a, a toy that you know is. Um, a toy that is alive and has feelings, but the the story um, went through so much workshopping. Originally, Woody was like this uh, tyrant that was um, controlling the the bedroom with an iron fist, <laughs> um, 
and you know it doesn't fit the the woody that we have in mind and a lot of those ideas come into when you get to toy story 3 with the uh what's the name of the bear i forget his name um they kind of rehashed some of those things and brought them back uh tom hanks was brought in on in 1991 um for for the film and like did all the uh, i was listening to an interview with him and they did basically an entire movie worth of voice acting and then scrapped it all and redid the entire thing all over again uh based on the rewrites that they'd done um the script and the story was such a mess that uh they ended up bringing in uh joss whedon and an entire writer's team uh partway through the process um, to basically rewrite the script in a matter of a few weeks and then take all the pieces of the script and put them all together. Joss Whedon then combined all of those into one working script and they took that and then put it through all the storyboarding and eventually we get what we end up with in 1995. Yeah, um, so this was, I had picked out sort of, looks like five five people that I really wanted to make sure we mentioned as personnel for this movie um, John Lasseter obviously is the big one. He um, would, this was the first film he had directed. He had done uh, a bunch of short films and he, until a couple of years ago, which we will obviously talk about uh, at the tail end of this podcast, he was the face of Pixar. And then in 2006, when Pixar was acquired by Disney, he became the face of Disney as well. And he was really um, at least by me, and I think a lot of other people viewed as sort of the magic touch that had come in and was able to storyboard all of these animated features just so well. Um, reading the history of Toy Story, it's a little unclear to me like how true all of that is, um, but I think it's I think it's hard to deny the influence that he had over. <laughs> the Pixar studio and then the Disney studio going forward. Um, yeah. One of the things we had discussed when we were thinking of this podcast is uh, that we w- wanted to kind of get away from this idea of like one person being the, the entire creative weight uh, behind things and look more at how um, the work is put together by a collaborative work of a lot of different um, artists. Uh, John Lans- Lasseter's fingerprints are all over Toy Story. Um, obviously he had a major hand in the story. It it is his story, even though there's a lot of different writers that are involved with it. Um, you know, he's the one that's working on this, but there was a huge amount of people that took this story that he originally had and then worked it through, um, all the, uh, there's so much craft craftsmanship in this story that you see from a large team of people working very hard to get all the details exactly right. Um, and, you know, we, we definitely want to acknowledge that that's there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that brings me to the next person I wanted to talk about, who Andrew Stanton. I can't remember if you said his name or not, but he was part of the creative team for this. And then he also will go on to become a big part of the Pixar team. Um, so he'll, he won't have the first movie that he directs until 2003 with Finding Nemo. Um, but he does do Finding Nemo, he does do Wally, and then he'll eventually do um, Finding Dory, as well as having additional EP credits and writing credits on a lot of the other movies. Um, and then we have our two our two lead actors. Um, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about Tom Hanks, yeah? 
Yeah, you know, I I was looking through the history uh, through Tom Hanks' filmography, and he just has. I I was trying to think of just a more impressive uh, decade of films that were put together uh, than these films that that Tom Hanks ended up doing in the '90s. And we have, you know, he starts off the '90s with Joe versus Volcano, which is kind of a cult classic, but was not a critical masterpiece by any means. Um, and then all of a sudden he has A League of Their Own, Sleepless in Seattle, Philadelphia, which he wins an Oscar for for Best, for best Actor. Uh, Forrest Gump wins it back-to-back years, uh, Best Actor. Then he has Forrest Gump and Apollo 13. Apollo 13, one of the uh, best movies of 1995. It's just an incredible film and one of uh, Tom Hanks' best performances. Uh, then he has... Let's see, um, we said Toy Story there, Saving Private Ryan, You've Got Mail, Toy Story 2, The Green Mile, and Castaway, all in this same decade. It is an incredible run of form, um, especially considering that what he had had before this decade was essentially the movie Big and the movie Turner and Hooch. And then it, that's that's almost it. There's a very few other uh, remarkable things that he did before, uh, before 1990. Um, so... It really was his decade. The 90s where Tom Hanks was just the king of the box office. He was where everything was at. Yeah, and it's really um, a tour de force of performances. Like, you don't really look at any of these movies. He's obviously recognizable as Tom Hanks in all of these movies. But you don't really look at any of them and think, yeah, he's just using the same bag of tricks. Like, he really shows... Uh, versatility and craft and it's just a (laughs) it's a great career in a single decade it's a great career it's a great career hard to hard to say a bad word about uh, Tom Hanks and his acting career Um, what I found fascinating about uh, Tom Hanks with this is that um, he got the part for this one in 1991 before any of these things were going on um no one knew that Tom Hanks was going to be such a big deal when he got the role for Woody, if that makes sense. Um, you know, obviously people were betting on him. He had uh, he had, had some uh, well-received performances beforehand. Uh, but uh, most of these films he ended up doing after Toy Story, uh, after he had acted on Toy Story, because it took so long in development. Um, so things like, uh, um, like a league of their own and sleepless in Seattle and Philadelphia and Forrest Gump, these, uh, performances that he won his Academy Awards for and things were after, uh, Toy Story. And then the movie is released, um, after those had already come out. So he did the work before those and then had kind of that cultural cachet going into Toy Story. Uh, it's just a fascinating process for how the movies came out yeah it's one of those things that you just can't really justify other than a little bit of good fortune and then also probably an ability you know an ability to spot talent right and those two things i think that'll be one of the major themes for our podcast is sort of the nexus of luck and (laughs) and talent or skill Yes. So, um, and then the other person, uh, his co-star in this movie, Tim Allen, um, who, in terms of, um, 
acting, in terms of movies, he hadn't really done a ton. Um, he'd had a stand-up comedian career, uh, I think from the late 70s that was pretty successful, but didn't really take off. And based on it looked like what he said, didn't ever really feel comfortable with acting until he started doing um, his TV show Home Improvement, uh, which I believe was in 1991. So this would have been yeah. smack dab in the middle of that. Um, and then ran for eight seasons through the basically, um, you know, through the entire 90s. Yeah. So by the time the movie comes out, um, I think Tim Allen was brought in later on the project. Right. So he would have people knew who he was at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. People knew who he was, but it, it still, you know, it's a, it's basically based on home improvement and the work that he'd done on that one. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about Tim Allen and you know, uh, some of the themes that's going on with this, but uh, some things to point out about Tim Allen. So Tim Allen was um, arrested on charges of um, selling cocaine, drug dealing, uh, and, and and could have ended up with a life sentence, but ended up um, uh, playing an informant role uh, <laughs> and got a smaller sentence. Um, and I think that's important because, you know, the 90, the 80s and the 90s and the war on drugs and all of these things are, you know, such an important aspect of the culture at this time period. And Tim Allen is, you know, um, he got really lucky in the, the way that he interacted with that system. As a white guy, he probably benefited from some amount of privilege uh, going into that. Some uh, And people kind of embraced him after this and you don't see that happen with a lot of kinds of other artists and so he came in and he built up this reputation and career as like it it's so home improvement is this guy he's a tool expert uh, and a home improvement expert and seen as sort of this um masculine figure but not in the same way that you had in the 80s with the mus muscle bound you know like action heroes um but this guy that's into cars and into tools and into building things um and uh, the this picture of masculinity that was building in the 90s tim allen is really a representative of this he has this um he had this famous thing where he would like grunt like a pig <laughs> um like oh, 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 and uh this kind of thing that we he would do to represent this idea of masculinity i don't think it's a mistake that they chose him for buzz lightyear uh to represent this is the point i'm trying to get to yeah um and the the last person i wanted to talk about is randy newman who wrote three original songs for this as well as uh penned the score and i think this is a pretty unique skill set as far as uh as far as i can think of um obviously um marvin hamlish and mark shaman both are songwriters as well as were film composers but randy but they weren't singer songwriters in the way that randy newman was um so he had by the time he penned his first film which was in 1982, he'd already been a successful singer-songwriter for a decade, um, which is generally not the way careers go. Um, generally, <laughs> composing for movies is something that's considered pretty difficult, and unless you're one of the big names, it's uh, not 
a path to glory. It's something that it's difficult to write music to a stopwatch. And so a lot of people don't really like to go backwards in that way. Um, mm-hmm. And so it it's just an interesting career trajectory for him. So Toy Story was his one, two, three, four, five, six, his seventh film that he did. Uh, oh, no, sorry. His one, two, three, looks like his fourth movie that he did the score for. And then he would end up being sort of the go-to composer for a lot of the Pixar movies going forward until they hooked up with other people. Um, And it's a score. I I will say when I was watching the movie, it's a score that felt very workmanlike to me. Um, But then when I was going back and listening to the soundtrack, um, then I could really hear and feel Randy Newman, the singer songwriter. And it's sort of it. I, I'd recommend if it's something you're interested in going back and listening to the soundtrack after watching the movie, because it gave me a better sense of how the score supported the film and how it was allowed it to just sort of ebb seamlessly using his own musical vocabulary. And then obviously yep. he had the three songs, the um, You've Got a Friend, which plays over the the title sequence um, was a... And, you know, that song is such a... They really landed a, you know, uh, they really got an ace in the hole with that first with that first song to start off the Pixar entire franchise, yeah. you know, the animation studio, and they hit that song. Um, it, it's just, you know, there's a little bit of serendipity in that, you know. It's, it's a really good one to have as your first song. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... Um, do you have anything else about sort of the history and the personnel on the movie before we dump, jump in? Dump. That's all that I've got. Yeah, that's all that I've got. Yeah. So I know we each picked uh, picked a couple scenes that we wanted to talk about for the movie. Um, so the first one that we wanted to talk about is this scene that happens after the title sequence. And it's the first time we see all of the toys come alive. And we see the world that Pixar has created. Um, so why don't you jump in on this one? Because I just talked for a little bit. So we we uh, have these toys and we see they're kind of uh, coming alive and coming together. And what really stuck out to me from this is you have Woody is this competent administrator for this little ecosystem uh, for uh, that's in Andy's room. And he gets up, you know, with it, with the microphone and is talking to the group and um, all of these things. It, it, it just stands out to me that you, you're seeing this kind of workplace comedy kind of vibe mm-hmm. uh, for all of these toys that are, that are gathering together with, with Andy as the competent boss that is reassuring everyone's feelings and making sure everything's good to go. Um, it's a it's an interesting sequence uh, uh, for all of that. Yeah, the thing that stuck out, the reason I put this on my list is I feel like this scene is really gives you such a perfect encapsulation of what Pixar has grown to mean for all of us. Um, there's a good amount of slapstick comedy for the kids. There's a good amount of just excitement in the imagination of seeing the toys come to life. But then it's also, it's sort of a sequence that 
it it feels like it grew out of a short, which I guess in some cases it did. Um, there's a lot that's really clever here. Um, they call the scene where Woody does a um, says draw to the etch a sketch, and so you get the yeah. nice little draw pun. Um, you have them calling Mr. Potato Head a calling him Picasso, and then he responds and calls the pig an uncultured swine. Um, and I just think that really set the scene for, like, parents are going to be able to come and they're going to be able to enjoy how clever we are because we are adults who are smart and we like putting these little things in uh, for every... We like putting them in for parents, and then we also like putting them in because we assume kids are going to love this movie or we hope kids are going to love this movie. And if they do, eventually they're going to grow up and they're going to show it to their kids. And it's like little Easter eggs for them. It's like stuff that they are going to get to rediscover. It's certainly how it worked for me. I didn't recognize the pun on draw. I didn't recognize how cute it was (laughs) that Woody was using the tape deck microphone to talk to the group. Um, that sort of stuff. I just think it's a really nice touch and shows how fully the Pixar team, or in this case, John Lasseter, Andrew Stanton, um, Joss Whedon, how fully they wanted to create their worlds. Yeah, it's a very much a fully realized like world. With um, you get a sense of a that the room has a culture, mm-hmm. um, that it has uh, like goals that it's trying to accomplish, um, and that it is a very lived in place. The other thing that I found really fascinating about the sequence, as I was watching this time, is they take each of the characters as they are developing them. And then they subvert expectations for them, basically with with Mm. each character that's presented. Um, You know, Woody, we get this original image of him, and I think it's fascinating how they develop. He's presented um, as this kind of, uh, at first you get this idea that he's this uh, cowboy sheriff, you know, um, the kind of lone gunman kind of thing. But then it turns out he's like just a competent administrator that's really caring about each individual person in uh, in the room. Um, and he's just working to make sure to solve all of their problems. Uh, uh, essentially like a, a good boss kind of idea here. Uh, you have uh, Mr. Potato Head, which is this toy that you normally think of like for, uh, you know, fairly young kids. Yeah, but at least ages three and up, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, as he says. Uh, but then the way that he's portrayed is this very kind of acerbic, kind of uh, nihilistic, um, uh, I don't know, he's just, he's kind of a jerk, uh, Mr. Potato Head, and he's uh, he's aggressive and just kind of uh, rude to people, but in a way that's still kind of uh, endear- fun and endearing. Um, yeah, but... and he's, he's crass, right? There's the yes. moment where, um, I can't remember who it is, but someone's sort of kissing up to to Woody and he takes his lips off and has them kiss his butt as if to say, yeah. Oh, look at this exactly. butt kisser, you know? Yeah. And later on, he's going to be the one that's, you know, leading the charge to, to, uh, to, you know, the mob to get rid of Woody and all of these things. He's, uh, he comes across as a very particular kind of character in those regards. Yeah. Um, 
I think Go it's ahead. interesting. I don't know if you did this on purpose. I think it's interesting that you're referring to Woody as a competent leader um, as opposed to a good leader because certainly Woody has the room under control and people really like him. But as we're going to see, as soon as he, as soon as any challenge comes up, then he isn't really qualified to take care of that. He's not qualified to deal with his own jealousy. And he he's only able to be a competent leader for as long as the status quo goes unchallenged. And as long as he's has the position of power in the room, um, as soon as, as soon as anything challenges his position as the favorite toy, everything comes crashing down for him. And that's one of the things that stood out to me this time. I listened to an interview with Tom Hanks, um, before watching the film where the the interviewer says, you know, Woody, one of the most beloved characters in cinemas. Uh, everyone loves him. He's such a great guy. Uh, everyone gets positive vibes. And then you watch this movie, and he's not like that. He is um, a backstabber. He is, you know, um, he is jealous. He is aggressive. Uh, he's doing a lot of really underhanded things at the beginning of this movie as soon as things become difficult for him in any way. Uh, and it just... I found it kind of interesting the this image that we have of Woody is that we built up in our mind is where Woody reaches by the end of the film, but he's not like that for the rest of the film. Yeah, that was pretty surprising to me, and especially um, I I really was kind of put off when he says to the toy to the group of toys he says. Um, you know, what's really important, it doesn't matter how much we get played with, what's really important is that we're here for Andy to do whatever he needs us to do. I'm paraphrasing, he doesn't say exactly Mm -hmm. that. But really, that's just, um, really, that's just a platitude that he's giving them, because as soon as Andy doesn't want to play with him, He's not really able to walk the walk on what he said. And he he, he throw, he's trying to throw Buzz un, under the dresser so he won't be found ever again. It's uh, it's one of the most horrible things that's done in the film yeah. is what he trying to take out Buzz right at the beginning. Yeah. Um, let's move on to the next scene if you don't, unless you want to say something else about this first sequence. That's all I've got. All right. Yeah. Let's talk about the, the gas station sequence. Yeah. So for me, this is like... Um, this is one of the most pivotal scenes in the film, and it's such a stark, uh, empty film or empty, empty scene. Um, I remember watching this scene and just feeling how big the gas station was, yeah. uh, and how alone these toys are. They're so small. The gas station is so big. It's so dimly lit, so dimly lit, um, and it has that those um, you know those lights that are just uh, they're they're just so stark when you're watching them um and there's this moment where woody is talking to buzz and it's this iconic moment where he calls him he says um you are a child's plaything like you are a toy you are a child's plaything and buzz's response is uh you are a sad strange little man um and it hit me this time as I was watching. I think that we're supposed to, when we first watch it, get this idea that Buzz is delusional because he doesn't know that he's a toy mm-hmm. and he needs to snap out of it. But at the same time, 
Woody is also completely delusional about uh, the way that he sees himself. Um, and the this moment that just stuck out in my memory is Buzz, uh, the, the semi-truck is coming in. Buzz makes a run for the gas pumps so that he can hide uh, and deal with the situation. And Woody falls flat on the ground. The semi-truck comes and nearly runs over and smashes Woody into bits. Uh, because Woody is only think of, thinking of himself as a toy and not as a person. Um, and in a way they are both deluding themselves, Buzz for refusing to acknowledge that he is a toy, but Woody, Woody refusing to acknowledge that he is also a person, um, and that he has goals and desires outside of just, uh, his devotion to Andy and the desire to be played with, uh, and coming to terms with those things. Yeah, I like that. So you're, you're saying they're setting them up as sort of diametrically opposed, um, exactly, which is I think is a really great place. This scene is a really great place to do that because the moment that I thought about in this scene is that shot when Andy Andy's car drives away. And exactly, you see how stark it is, you see how big it is. But also, I think until this moment, you're supposed to think that this movie is about Woody versus Buzz and Buzz is the antagonist. Up, to, up until now, Buzz mm-hmm. has been serving the form of the antagonist. But at this point, when the car drives away, there's this realization of, oh no, that's not what this movie is about at all. And all of a sudden, Buzz and Woody switch to being joint protagonists. And they're both going to have to undergo some change and they're both going to have to grow in order to get back to Andy or reach their happy place. Um, Exactly. And this last half of the movie has a lot of structure of essentially a horror movie mm -hmm. Um, with, you know, they're, they're going to be trying to survive getting to pizza planet. Sid comes in, takes them and then takes them back to the house. And it's, uh, you know, it is, it is structured to put them in the uh, least comfortable places where they're in danger constantly. And the problems are so much bigger than they have the capacity to, to do anything about. Um, and they have to rely on each other in order to survive because they, they both need the skills that the other person has. Uh, it, it's a great scene. It is. Yeah. Um, let's um, I think this brings us to the next scene that uh, I wanted to talk about, but I think we both had it on our list. And that's the sequence where Buzz sees the commercial of and has the realization of, oh, my goodness, I am a toy. I am not special. I'm not defending the universe from Zurg. Um, and I wanted to talk about this sequence basically through to when he decides to help Woody. And I think there are some really amazing parts about this sequence. And I think there are also, this was the sequence where there were also some things that felt to me like maybe they didn't age quite as well, which I'm interested to talk to you about. Um, And then, yeah. So the thing that I think works extremely well here is you see buzz's world get flipped upside down you see the realization yeah Yeah, you just see him break and you essentially see 
him go through the denial where he is going to climb up onto the railing and he's going to try and fly to the window and instead he just craters to earth and that shot of the camera pulling back on him and it's twisting and you just see him lying on the ground his leg looks kind of broken but i mean he's a toy i guess legs bend like that but his arm has fallen off and you see you just see him completely and utterly dejected i think that was really emotional for me this time i felt like that was just (laughs) it it felt brutal watching someone's life get destroyed like that and you know we talked a little bit about randy newman and his score um and so he's doing this uh technique that we call mickey mousing where the uh the score is following along with the action and like signaling the action that's happening and this moment where it soars with this heroic refrain Mm -hmm. no it can't be true i can fly if i wanted to and he gets up and then he's like i believe i can fly he jumps off and then crashes to the ground and then all of a sudden the the song comes down and it is sad and dejected and it just really stabs you in the gut this uh, this scene it is incredibly emotional um it really connected with me when i originally watched it um and it's just an emotional scene it really is yeah and then we move into the sequence the scene where he has been set up and is having tea in yeah, the tea party to Sid's sister's room. And this is what I'm sort of interested to hear what you have to say about this, because this felt a little uncomfortable to me this time, where it was never commented on that Buzz was sort of wearing, uh, not sort of, he was wearing girly clothes. And I think that was supposed to signal his humiliation in a way that did not feel like it had aged particularly well. It felt a little cheap to me. Fortunately, they didn't comment on it. It it would have been very easy, especially for the mid-90s, to see Woody make a joke about, ha-ha, you're wearing women's clothes, but clothes buzz. Um, And then, sorry, we got a... We're recording in New Jersey. Uh, We have sirens (laughs) outside. Uh, Probably leave that in. I don't know. Um, And you have... And then also, I I wasn't 100% sure how I felt about Buzz essentially getting drunk on Darjeeling tea. And I don't know, what, what, what what were your thoughts on, on that part? So my thoughts on that, we have to rewind just a little bit. Um, to, there's some things that I think really stand out. So, um, when they get over to Sid's house, uh, I was paying really close attention this time to all the details that are going on here. Um, and Sid's house is, uh, you know, we have Sid's room that it's this very dark and, uh, and, uh, scary place. But even when you go in the rest of the house, there's this moment where Buzz goes down and he watches the commercial. Um, and the father, Sid's father, father figure, we don't get much details about this, is sitting there watching sports and this commercial comes on. Uh, But he is laying there kind of snoring, zoned completely out. The room is incredibly dark. um, And you have a bunch of cans. They're soda cans. But I think it's supposed to be implied that, you know, he's uh, that Sid's father has drunken himself into a a stupor. Uh, There is garbage all over this room uh, with uh, just uh, paper stacked in the garbage cans. Um, And you have several, like, antlers that are posted up around the the room 
Uh, and then you have the this transition where you have Sid's mom in the rest of the house is, you know, she's trying to get him to, uh, um, you know, do the things he's supposed to do as a kid and then um, kind of navigating the conflicts between Sid and his sister. Um, and so I think that this idea oh, of... Really quickly, Matty, the other thing that happened in this sequence that struck me as really ominous, I think it was in this sequence, is the dog sort of noses their way into the room where the dad is and mm. sees that the dad is there and runs away scared. And I yes. think the implication is supposed to be this dad beats that dog. Yeah. And uh, I I agree. I think this is supposed to be the implication that the, the dad is, um, when he is not being violent, he is uh, absent. Uh, and that this room is the dad's room where no one is supposed to go into. It is supposed to be dark. It's scary. Um, and uh, the we are supposed to see this father figure as a threat. Yeah. And so how did you get hit by the by Buzz being dressed up? in girl so-called girly clothing and he's got really, an apron on and yeah wearing um, an apron and being drunk I, so i, I mean, think really the, drunk like he is yeah and he's uh on drunk and on top of it he's just very depressed and um he it seems like they're even going for that he's having a little bit of almost a psychotic break um so I think that this is I think this is a deliberate choice that they're making. Um, I, I don't think that it's only just for uh, just for like just a gag. I think that they are presenting a certain kind of uh, position uh, regarding masculinity and femininity and gender norms in general, um, and uh, kind of like the threat of this masculinity that's in the house, but also they're portraying the femininity in the house as being. Uh, foolish or absurd in some way. Uh, and you see this conflict also playing out between Sid uh, and his sister. So I I do think that a lot of this doesn't hold up. I think a lot of the way that they're approaching gender um, doesn't hold up especially well from the film. But I think it's also extremely reflective of the time period in the 90s. Um, it was... The, the 90s was one of the most hostile... Uh, time periods for femininity that I for feminism I should say that I can remember it was um, I remember you know the way that the media treated Britney Spears is one of the things that uh, that pops into my mind that fits into this and just all kinds of female icons and I think that this is uh, playing into some of those things in a lot of ways yeah I think you could probably if you wanted to be extremely generous now that you say that, I think you could probably make a reading of it that this is happening in the bad home. And so you could, if you wanted to be generous, you could probably read it as a deconstruction of that. But it doesn't feel like they took I agree. Yeah. Uh, a strong enough point of view. And then also knowing what we know about uh, John Lasseter. Uh, John Lasseter. And, and Joss Whedon, to be honest. And Joss Whedon, and also Tim Allen, um, who is, uh, if you go back and look at his earlier sketches, there is so much, um, just kind of, I, I listened to one of his earlier sketches, and I was deeply uncomfortable with the <laughs> kind of blatant misogyny. There's this one joke that comes up, he says, um, he says, you know, my grandma would always say that men are pigs. He says, well, 
that's okay because we own everything <laughs> and just kind of laughs and i was like this line does Whoa. not hold up well yeah it does not hold up well um Whoa. and so i i think you know the 90s were this weird time because there was there was also this like girl power movement that was mm-hmm. going around like the girl boss kind of idea and movement um but there was so much backlash to uh con- like femininity um and even these like uh the uh the feminism like girl power kind of movements a lot of these were tied in um with i'm trying to think of how to express this um like in a, a rejection of femininity in a lot of ways um and this view of things that women and girls like as being just inherently inferior uh was so prevalent throughout the culture um and it is a lot of reason the reason why when you look at why pixar makes this movie that they are deliberately rejecting the princess formula that was coming beforehand i know we want to talk about that a little bit later but um i i do also want to mention that you see this house in this moment in contrast to andy's house which does not have a male figure at all um and if you're uh like a um uh there's his mom there's andy uh and then there's his sister the baby but there's no father figure in the house. Um, and when you look at the pictures that are on the walls, you do not see a picture of a father figure at all. Um, it's And so it's not something that you're supposed to get the impression that the, the dad died um, mm-hmm. and this family was left alone. I think you're supposed to get the impression that, that Andy's dad just skipped town at some point and is, um, it, it's just a single mom family that they're trying to make ends meet. Um, and the only father figure, the only... Um, uh, this male authority figure that Andy has is is Woody, his toy cowboy doll. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. I find this whole thing fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. Let's just finish up this sequence here. Um. You. G- it it does a pretty nice job of supporting that idea of the dual protagonists between Woody and um buzz because you see you see woody really learn his first lesson i think until this point he had needed buzz because he thought he needed buzz to have the other toys let him back in um so you haven't really seen any of that personal growth from him yet and you won't see him reach that point on buzz until basically the end of the movie but this is the first time where he has to confront that his judgment of the horror toys in sid's room was uh an incorrect judgment where he sees them take buzz and put the arm back on and just because they had their lives destroyed by sid doesn't mean that they're bad or mean toys and you see him have to recalibrate for that and then on the other end of that, you see him have to pull Buzz out of his funk and tell him that being a toy is great. And this was this was probably the part of the movie that bummed me out the most because I didn't realize until I was watching it this time that the moment... We don't get to see the moment where Buzz 
accepts himself as a toy and accepts who he is. It happens off camera because it's a it's basically in service of Woody's story so that we can mm-hmm. it's a surprise as the Deus Ex Machina or whatever that lets Woody get out of the box that he's trapped in. And it it kind of bummed me out that we didn't get to see Buzz make that jump. I, what what was your thought on that? You know, I it's it definitely is using it, we see Woody's story here, and uh, he's trying to explain to him what's good about being a toy. Um, we don't get to see Buzz's response, or you know, we get his response, but we don't get to see him go through. It's not like the scene where he jumped off the railing. I think yeah. is where I'm thinking with this, where we got to see all of that emotion playing out with him as he came to the realization uh, that it was destroying his worldview. We don't get to see anything that's built up in to replace that. Um, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where my feelings are with this one. It wasn't, it seems like it was not something that you bumped on, on this viewing. Yeah. I wasn't really thinking about it in this viewing, but, uh, now that you bring it up, it is, it's interesting, but I'm not sure. So one of the things that I was thinking about with this series is, or with, um, this film toy story is that it leaves a lot of things. Uh, for me, like, I don't want to call them holes, but things like um, uh, Buzz kind of coming to an acceptance of himself as a toy. I feel like the follow-up movies, uh, Toy mm-hmm. Story 2, 3, and 4, kind of uh, get into this concept of what it means to be a toy and what it means to be a person and how they are both of these things at the same time uh, in a little bit deeper way than this film is able to approach. So that's where my mind is going is I'm thinking of Toy Story 2 where, you know, he kind of goes through uh, goes through a journey with experiencing those things when they go to the toy store or in Toy Story 3 when they get, you know, kind of uh, taken to the to the daycare and all of those things. Uh, that's kind of where my mind is going with Buzz. Uh, and especially so I'm thinking of Toy Story 4, where essentially Woody gives up being a toy to go be a person and Buzz stays with the room to to just completely accept being a toy. Mm. Um, and this kind of uh, journey, this emotional journey that they're going over over the course of four movies, um, that's kind of where, where my mind is going with that. Yeah, they really cross each other. And yeah. end up on on different sides of the same coin. That yeah, that's a nice framing that I had not. So uh, I think I thought about. I agree that you don't get to see it in this film. I think that it does get addressed though in the later films. Sure. Um, so. Yeah, th- we've got one more scene that we had picked out to talk about. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about this sequence before we move on? I don't know. That's it. All right, let's talk about this car chase scene at the end. Yeah, so I just want to talk about this car chase scene as, a, as uh, just from a movie-making perspective. Um, I, it is such a good action sequence that is put together. Um, what I, I just found really fascinating, the way that this entire scene is blocked, the entire way that this scene is structured. Um, you know, it's uh, the idea that it's this moving van is that is not moving at a particularly fast pace for your normal kind of car chase, uh, but for the toys it is, and it's <laughs> it is. There are so many moments where 
It is the stakes are as high as it could possibly be, and they are just a moment from success, and then it gets ripped out of their hands at, at the at, at the last moment. Um, and the the moment that really stands out to me is when they're they're chasing after, uh, and the batteries start dying, and they fall back. And they're just dejected and ready to give up. And then they remember the rocket and Woody pulls out the match and he lights it and then it gets blown out. And he just starts, you know, they just are completely dejected and destroyed. Um, But then he sees the light shining through Buzz's helmet. And all of these things were put into place and foreshadowed um, and built into place in earlier scenes so that it would be ready for this moment that was going to come come up. but then it all comes together in this last scene. It's such a masterful, um, uh, a masterful uh, set of story building for this this big set piece. Yeah, and it's just exciting. Like it's fun to watch the car go fast. It's fun to watch them fly. And this is the third time that flying has come up for Buzz. The first time he sort of faked it. The second time he failed, and that or didn't fake it. The first time he got lucky, and then this third time. Uh, it really does seem like there's at least some amount of aerodynamics going on uh, that he's able to utilize. Um, so it's a nice, nice building of that for him and for Buzz and Woody's relationship. The The thing that I love about this sequence, and this is going to come up a lot as we talk about movies, is it does probably the thing that I love when movies do the most, which is it makes me feel like I'm one step ahead of the movie because I'm like, oh, it's okay. It's okay that the batteries are dying because I remember that Sid put the match in Woody's thing and then they're going to light the rocket and then they're going to get to go fast enough and then they're going to get there. And then it had been long enough since I'd seen it that when the match blew out, I legitimately forgot how it was fixed. And... So I thought I was ahead of the movie. I thought, oh, that was so cute. They planted the match. But no, it turns out the movie was ahead of me. And I think that's just the best feeling. I think it makes everything feel connected and it makes it feel real that they're like, haha, you thought you were ahead of us, but we got you. Yes, and it's structured so well because Sid did do that thing where he tortured Woody with the magnifying glass earlier. So yeah. it's all set up. There's we we there's perfect reasons why Woody co- comes to the conclusion to use Buzz's helmet. Um, but they they kind of give us a red herring with that match. Like it's going to be okay. They have the match. It's it's going to be fine. And then they blow it out and they rip that red herring away. But they've planted this other solution that uh, if you if you pay close enough attention, you can kind of figure out where they're going with it. But um, they kind of lead you deliberately down down a different path. Yeah, and they just do it fast enough that like, or I don't know, maybe, maybe if you're smarter than I am, you figure it out. But at least for someone of my intelligence level, uh, it was fast <laughs> enough that I, I was just one step behind them, which is really great. It is. It's a it's a really great moment. And then when they fly up and, you know, he says, uh, Buzz, you're flying. No, I'm fine. Falling with style. I think it's a perfect moment that um, that um, Woody accepts like Buzz's personhood, like as a space ranger, he's flying. He's doing exactly what he says he can do. But at the same time, Buzz accepts his uh, his or Buzz accepts that he is a toy um, and that he can't really fly. But there are things that he can still do as a toy. Um, it's it's just a remarkable scene. Yeah. 
Um, great. So that that ends our the scenes that we had wanted to talk about. Let's uh, we're running a little longer than we had intended, but let, let's talk quickly about some of the the crunchy stuff, some of the sort of harder harder to stomach stuff about this movie. We got into a little a little bit with Tim Allen um, and his comedy. Yes. Um, obviously, or not obviously, because I didn't know until I was looking it up, but uh, Tim Allen voted, was a supporter for uh, Donald J. Trump in the 2016 election, uh, something that... A vocal supporter. Yeah. A vocal supporter, yeah, yeah, yeah. not just yeah. we found out he voted for him later. Um, but most importantly, uh, let's just touch a little bit on John Lasseter and the, the so I, I guess if people don't know in 2019 or 2018 uh, it came out that there were sexual assault and sexual harassment I, I guess allegations against John Lasseter but I in an email to the company he basically admitted them so I don't even know if they have to be called allegations but allegations of him making lewd comments about women's appearances in the workplace and unwanted touching and unwanted kissing as well. And so he is no longer with Pixar. And the it's a bummer. It sucks. This is someone who has had a big hand in a lot of the movies that I love and a lot of the movies that you love and... Uh, it's hard to watch them without thinking about it or without having some part of it being like, Ugh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, additionally, this is kind of one of the things that I was trying to point out here as well, is that I think those influences are felt in this film um, with, uh, you know, with Tim Allen playing the role as um, as Buzz Lightyear, and there are there are moments with the interactions between Woody and uh, Bo Peep that um, kind of I don't think hold up as well in the in the light of this. And then that moment where Mr. Potato Head at the end is just like uh, Mrs. Potato Head, Mrs. Potato Head. Um, it just there there's this kind of uh, these underlying threads of like casual misogyny that I don't know that I saw. Well, I know that I didn't see clearly when I had seen it as, as a kid uh, and that become a little bit more crystallized um, once you see these effects, um, or these allegations, um, uh, this misconduct from, from John Lasseter. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else you want to say about this? <laughs> sadness so i think one of the things that um that one of the lenses or one of the approaches that um that i wanted to approach these kinds of issues with i think we're going to encounter them a lot um yeah. and i think the way that i think of uh criticism and uh, criticism as in what we're doing here of thinking deeply through a film and the things that are involved with it is that uh the goal is 
to look at these kinds of things and have kind of a therapeutic therapeutic effect where we see the the things that are in the film that are influenced by these harmful things that that happened um, and come to an understanding of the way that shapes it and the way that we can respond to it. Um, I generally think of uh, criticism uh, and this therapeutic effect of of criticism as being a really essential way to look at films in general. Yeah, it's the I think something that, and we don't need to get into it too much here, but I, something that is part of the reason why we wanted to do this podcast is something that you and I believe in very strongly is movies don't just exist by I mean obviously they do exist by themselves but they the interaction with a movie between a human and maybe a group watching the movie is what transforms it and is what we're talking about and so what someone brings to a movie or what someone is able to take away from the movie um, or how the movie affects them is really I think what is most important to us right exactly um cool so that's that we i know we wanted to talk about the major themes of the movie i think we did a pretty good job of covering both of the major themes that i wanted to talk about um just to encapsulate them quickly um this movie really felt like it was about um having the perils of jealousy for yourself especially if you're a leader in woody and watching him grow past that to become a better leader and a better human and a better friend and then also the counterpoint of that watching buzz have to confront us self-delusion and grow and learn who he is as a well not as a human but as a toy yeah i really do feel like um that underneath of this entire story is this it's playing with this concept of what a person is um are they a toy are they a person the answer is both they're both things at the same time Mm -hmm. and i think that's the revelation that both buzz and woody have to come to in order for this film to resolve uh it doesn't work to just think of themselves as a toy but it doesn't work to think of themselves just as a space ranger um uh i just I keep coming to this thought that in a lot of ways, Buzz kind of is a space ranger. You know, he's a toy that only has, like, his laser doesn't shoot real lasers. And, you know, he doesn't have, like, uh, jetpacks or anything. But he does still have so many skills from his personhood that he is applying to the situations uh, that are so essential. Uh, I don't know. I, I really love that in this idea. It's the revelation that it doesn't get rid of everything that you previously understood. It just, you have to adapt the way that you're thinking of things to this new situation, to this new understanding that you have. Yeah. Um, do you want to quickly touch on your major themes and then we'll we'll wrap up here? Yeah, so the, the we've addressed in a lot of, um, in, in a lot of cases throughout this podcast, the one of the major things that I want to talk about was uh, the interaction of this film with its interpretations of gender. Um and so we, we've touched on that a little bit, but I, I just wanted to, you know, there's um, the kinds of ways that this story is approaching masculinity, I find really fascinating. Um, it comes at this era where Disney had made, it was known for its princess movies with, you know, The Little Mermaid and um, uh, Beauty and the Beast and Pocahontas comes right out, out right after this. Um, 
and you had Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, all of these things. Um, the long history of princess movies. The long history of princess yeah. movies, though, when, when you go back and look, the, there's way more movies that are not princess movies in the Disney catalog. Um, but in this mid-90s time, Disney was really trying to get away from this image as being the uh, of their films being the princess movies. And I think that in a lot of ways, this movie is a deliberate attempt to uh, to distance themselves from um, from femininity and like uh, and um, films made for for little girls, especially Um, it's uh, approaching masculinity with uh, you have these two. Uh, masculine figures that are presenting two different ideas of masculinity in Woody and in Buzz. Um, Woody starts off of, as this idea of like this cowboy that's kind of like at the time period was the quintessential image of of you know masculinity in the United States. This independent cowboy that's a lone ranger that goes and you know rescues the damsel in distress and um, all of these kinds of things. And then you have Buzz that's representing this kind of uh, newer uh, masculinity and these things come into conflict with each other. Um, it does approach, there is some kind of dis- difference in the masculinity that's presenting of uh, these um, homosocial relationships between Buzz and Woody um, and the way they are learning to have genuine uh, appreciation and love for each other in order to solve their problems. Um, but at the same time, there is a lot of this film that is based on kind of the rejection of femininity um, and the embracing of this kind of different style of masculinity or different styles of masculinities, we might say. Yeah. And so do you think, do you think that it was a good thing for them to do? And do you think how successful, I guess, scale of one to ten do you think they were yeah this is weird for me so like uh when i watched this when i was 11 um i i think i kind of picked up on a lot of this stuff how they were trying to move away from uh uh things that were obviously uh feminine and you know there's a lot of movement towards presenting uh women as like um you know uh uh, the way that they are presenting women kind of changes. You have, um, what's her name from Hunchback of Notre Dame? Esmeralda. And Esmeralda, you have Meg yeah. from Hercules that are going to come up. Um, and they're portraying women uh, as kind of these strong women characters as a rejection of the concept of femininity. I don't think those things hold up very well. And I think that um, that this film would have been better serviced by embracing femininity a little bit more. And I think they kind of tried to do this, uh, especially in uh, Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3. Um, You introduce, I forget the name of the the girl in Toy Story 2, from Woody's line of toys. Um, Yes, the cowgirl, I don't... Yes, I can't remember her name. I think they tried to address this, and they kind of, they introduce um, the, the, the girl that plays with the toys as well later on, and kind of taking these toys and transitioning between them. I think there's this, uh, this um, you see this trend, and the way it's kind of trying to get repaired throughout the Toy Story franchise. Um, I, I, yeah, I think overall that this is one of the things that kind of disappoints me about this film, is... 
the way that they are trying to uh, move away from femininity. Uh, they are trying to embrace different kinds of masculinities, but it comes at the cost of femininity when they do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, it doesn't feel like we as a culture did a very good job about thinking about gender norms or uh, femininity and masculinity and the nexus and everywhere in between really until the last like five or six years and maybe in a decade we'll look back at how we're thinking about it now and realize how far we had to go Um, so I don't think this is going to be a big surprise as we explore um, a lot of these older movies it's true. And uh, I, I do want to make sure to clarify here that um, the movie definitely like looks at gender as a binary. Um, but, I, you know, we do are thinking of gender as a spectrum um, and they don't really give any space for that. And so that's some of the other things that I think are problematic. Um, and even with uh, I find like the dinosaur really stood out to me this time. Mm-hmm. Um, a dinosaur that is, uh, you know, they, they take this dinosaur and he appears and like roars in Woody's face the first time. And then they immediately subvert the expectations of the kind of uh, way the dinosaur has, is this, uh, neurotic, um, uh, this neurotic creature that's, um, a little bit more, you know, he has a higher pitch voice and he, uh, he is obsessive about all these different things. And I think that there is some amount of play on this i this way that they are looking at gender and this kind of um uh rejection of femme kind of uh gender expressions in this in this film yeah it's really the dinosaur was a last minute addition well a late addition to the film it was something that was suggested by uh joss whedon who we don't have to get into it now. I'm sure we'll talk about future Joss Whedon films and his uh, yeah. issues. But um, the the subversion of those tropes was something that would become a major theme through a lot of a lot of his works. Yes. So it it's clear, you know, where some of those things come from. Um, at the same time, I do think that there are some some steps that they're making in the pos- in in a positive direction at looking at different kinds of masculinities and the way that you can express masculinities in more healthy ways. Um, those those things are good. Um, just you know, at the cost, at what cost does it come? So, yeah. Um, did you have any any other themes you wanted to talk about here? So the other thing that we don't need to get into this too much um, because we're running a little bit uh, on time, but um, and we will look at other Pixar movies in the future. So this will come up over and over. But one of the major themes that Pixar movies have is this idea of focusing on believability over realism. And this film, I think, does a really good job of that, that um, the goal is not to make things a, um, you know, a perfect replica of reality, but to make things have emotion and have believability uh, to make it seem like the the point that they make in Pixar when they're talking about like how to make this happen is that it needs to be clear that the characters are thinking about things that they are deliberating about things that they are um, that they have a personality uh, that they are a person and they're not just this object that is uh, that is being replicated visually in the in the TV screen. Cool. So 
let's go ahead and close up here. We um, will do our full, full sign off and everything. And then I think Matt and I both have sort of a fun sign off question that we'll do at the tail end if you want to stick around for that. But this was our first episode. We I was watching the time and the it did seem like we ran a little longer than we wanted to in our opening section where we were placing the history of the movie. So we will try and cut that down in the future. But if you have any feedback for us, what you liked, what you didn't like, uh, what you didn't like is actually probably... Uh, better for us to hear because it lets us Mm. shape everything for the future but obviously hearing stuff that you did like is nice as well um you can hit me up on twitter i am at zvazda z-v-a-z-d-a and it'll be in the show notes and that is uh at o-ray m-w o-r-a-y m-w yeah And then tune in for us next week. Next week, we are going to be watching Snow White. uh, We started this week with the one that started everything for Pixar. And then Snow White is the one that starts everything for Disney Animation Studios. And um, I'm sure we'll say it in the trailer that we'll release before this. But if it isn't clear, every movie that we watch in this first season is going to be on Disney+. Plus. So that that if it seems like we have a specific skew to our movies, that's because that's what we're limited to for this one. Um, so that'll be we'll do eight episode seasons and then either stick to Disney Plus or pick a different streaming service. Yeah. Uh, so to sign off here, Maddie, uh, I wanted to ask you as a kid who what toy was was your Woody? Uh, what toy was my Woody? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not so much a toy person, but I'm a blanket person. I'm, mm. I'm a Linus. Um, so, you know, I just have, uh, I love to always have a blanket with me. Um, and I had my blanket that I had for 15 years, maybe longer. Yeah. Um, and so that would probably be it though. Um, uh, this blanket ended up getting lost in South America um, no. in, a, in a luggage disaster. Um, and so I, I lost it and don't have it anymore. Uh, but that would be the one for me. Uh, what's yours? Uh, mine, I had a stuffed gunned bear. Uh, pretty, I think a relatively famous line uh, polar bear named Snuffles. And I have many snuffles in the apartment uh, now. I don't have the original one because he got lost on the... He's in the great plane in the sky somewhere. A very, very sad moment in my... As they uh, go. 20s. Our lost toy stories, you know? Yeah. It definitely works. Um, So my question for you is, uh, uh, in kind of a similar vein, uh, if you were... A toy. Which toy would you be? Mm. I think I would be from this movie or from from any movies. Either. Either. Mm. I think I would probably be the uh, giant piano from Big. <laughs> yeah, that is that is a very good answer. It's a uh, and such a great toy in general. Yeah. Um, what about you? 
Um, you know, it's tricky. I think that if I were picking a, a, an animal or a toy from this film, I would probably be either Rex or um, or Slinky. Um, one of these two. You know, it's just Rex with his uh, his neuroticism and you know just insecurities and all of those kinds of things and trying to uh, trying to figure out better ways to express himself. I definitely identify with that. So. Yeah, if I were from this movie, I would probably be the little typewriter with because I'm very literal and uh, yeah. Yeah, I love it. That's great. All right, so that'll do it for this week and I'll talk to you next week. Talk to you then. Bye.